Welcome to the podcast of the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's famous radical bookshop, located in Melbourne, Australia. Check out nibs.org.au to find out more about the benefits of annual membership, upcoming events, podcast recordings, and ways to volunteer or donate books to the shop. In our second episode of the podcast, we bring you a recent talk held at the bookshop, given by former Australian diplomat and proud left-winger, Anthony Skews. In the talk, Anthony provides an overview of the arguments made in his new book, Politics for the New Dark Age, Staying Positive Amidst Disorder. The book argues that voters, appalled by the direction of current politics, respond to leaders that articulate a cohesive and genuine progressivism. The book provides the framework for politicians and activists to deliver that vision, organised around the themes of cooperative solutions to social problem-solving and a social contract centred on rights and the equal dignity of all people. Drawing on contemporary Australian examples, Anthony shows how the partisan divide recurs in policy debates, from civil rights to inequality to economic growth to the environment and foreign policy. He argues that we should recommit to fighting for our democracy in order to manage these social differences and channel them into opportunities for social progress. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Um, so this book was written in sort of starting in 2015 and throughout 2016 uh, at a time when um, the idea of radical uh, progressive politics of the democratic socialist variety was still something of a pipe dream to me. Um, you know, I came of age during the neoliberal era, as I'm sure many people here who are in their 30s did. Um, you know, we were told that there was no alternative. And uh, in Australia, at least, we had just been through the six years of the Rudd-Gillard uh, governments. And although they had done some important work, patching up some of the rough edges, you know, with um, workplace relations and with a national uh, disability insurance scheme uh, and um, school funding, uh, for, for example, that whole uh, labor experiment had um, been somewhat disappointing, as we all know. And at the same time, overseas, the sort of the long Obama years were coming to an end. And I think there was a dawning awareness that um, the Obama um, government hadn't lived up to the, to the high progressive hopes that it had, had existed at the time. And at the same time, in the United Kingdom, um, you know, the Tories were, had been in power. Brexit was on the horizon, and it looked like the, the UK Labour Party was um, going to be annihilated in much the same way as the, as the Socialist Party in France and, and elsewhere in Europe. So this was, this was kind of like a <laughs> cry in the darkness at the time, sort of saying, hey, you know, neoliberalism has failed, the kind of the technocratic left-wing approach uh, has failed. What can we do to sort of go back uh, to, a, to a more uh, radical vision? And it just so happened in 2016 that I, as I was writing this, uh, a lot of other people around the world were saying exactly the same thing. And then, you know, I was you know, using the word democratic socialism in my book and suddenly Bernie Sanders, a democratic socialist, was a viable um, candidate for the, for the um, American presidency, which is shocking. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, the British Labour Party was the largest political party in Europe because a, a vowed democratic socialist in the person of Jeremy Corbyn was, was elected as leader. Um, so it's, it's a book very much of, of that particular moment and in response to 
um, that moment of, of, uh, of 2016. So although the words um, Sanders and Corbyn don't appear uh, in the book because uh, the text was, was largely finalized by the time they were um, nationally relevant, um, it, is, uh, it is very much about them and, and about what that would look like if it was applied in an Australian context. Um, uh, so I read a lot of lefty books, as I'm sure you all do. Uh, and I've found generally that they fall into sort of three broad patterns. There, there's sort of three kinds of books that you can write about the left. Um, the first of, of those categories is, is sort of an issue-oriented book. You know, we say, uh, particularly in Australia, that the Labour Party is the party that has its primary concerns are health and education. Um, you know, and attached to those issues are particular policies. So you have very smart people, you know, Rucker, Rucker Bremen in the US, uh, sorry, in, in, in the EU, um, Paul Mason in the UK, who are very smart guys who like look at the world, diagnose a particular problem and come up with a particular policy solution to it. And then when we take those, that kind of narrative, that kind of issue focused, policy oriented narrative, into an actual political program, well, what do we find? We find, well, the Labour Party is the party of Medicare. You know, the Labour Party is the party of, of the NDIS and particular government schemes are enacted at a particular time. And then we kind of think that, well, we're gonna get into government, we're gonna legislate these schemes, and then we're gonna spend the next 50 years defending them from, from attacks by the right. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a mode of thinking that encourages you to say, there's this one big problem, and if we fix this one big problem, then we'll have done our job, and all we need to do after that is, is sit back and sort of defend it. Um, so again, I, I, I don't take any issue with the people who think that way or write that way. I think they come up with a lot of good ideas, um, but I don't think sort of that sort of kind of issues-based approach is gonna provide you know, momentum past any one particular election cycle. Um, the second sort of way you can write a narrative of the left is, is, is the intersectional approach, you know, which is you look at a particular culture in a particular time and you identify you know, the, the, the narrative arc of people in that society who have been marginalized. Um, women, of course, in every society at every time, uh, but also depending on the, the different uh, country that you're talking about, there are particular ethnic groups, religious groups, sexual minorities, gender minorities. And you can write a history of the left, and it's a creditable history, of a series of struggles um, in order to take marginalized groups and move them into the, the mainstream of society, just to, to center them, to ensure that they have access to the same rights and privileges as everybody else. And you know, that's a great narrative. You know, the left has done fantastic work historically is in hand in hand with the feminist movement, with the movement for racial justice in various places around the world most recently with gay rights. Um, but, you know, it's kind of escaped the notice of anybody in this room in particular that um, there's a lot of gay billionaires, you know, you know, that run extremely powerful companies that contribute massively to global inequality, that dodge taxes, uh, that hoard wealth, that abuse workers, that crack down on unions. So, um, Again, you know, supporting minority groups and advancing them to the center of society is a, is a worthy goal, but it only gets you, you know, you solve one problem and then that's it. It's not a, it's not a solution that, that goes for all time. And then additionally, as like, you know, a white straight dude, <laughs> um, I don't really feel comfortable writing that kind of narrative about the left. It, it's just not my wheelhouse. Um, 
the third way you can do a sort of a, a left-wing narrative, and particularly these days, is the sort of the environmental justice approach. Um, and this I, I would recommend for anyone who hasn't read it before, um, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, uh, because it is the best sort of encapsulation of the argument that I've seen, where you sort of make the argument about why um, the environment matters and why changing the environment implies changing the structure of, of capitalist society. Um, again, not my wheelhouse, but full credit to, to sort of people who go down that road. So what this book is, is, is a little bit different uh, in that it tries to, rather than starting with a series of problems and coming up with a series of solutions, it says, what is socialism or progressivism, left-wingism, uh, as a sort of a, a trans-historical, trans-cultural kind of phenomenon? You know, what is it that unites every leftist movement in history philosophically that makes them similar and different from the right wing in a way that we all immediately recognize one another as progressives and right-wingers immediately recognize one each one as, as right-wingers, despite the fact that the policy positions that we support and the problems that we're trying to solve differ from time to time and from place to place. So the vision of this book and, and sort of the argument that I'm trying to make is that socialism is, an, is a way of doing politics. It's a way of seeing politics and it's a way of seeing human society um, that we can apply in any place and in any, any time. It's not a particular set of policies, it's not a particular political program, it's not supporting the rights of a particular set of minorities. It may be all of those things, um, but we can apply this framework um, in a lot of different places. And I, I, I don't know what sort of people's tendencies are, and I don't know if I'm gonna get into trouble for saying this, um, but I'm, a, I'm a somewhat of a fan of Edward Bernstein, <laughs> um, of he of evolutionary socialism fame. Uh, and his quote is, um, you know, for, for socialists, the, the goal is nothing. The movement is everything, right? He was a, he believed in socialism as a progressive movement and it didn't really, he wasn't as committed as orthodox Marxists, uh, much to <laughs> political controversy, uh, as a particular vision of the future society that he wanted. Um, for him, the movement was everything and that's um, sort of the direction that I have to. All right, what do I say next? Right, so when I say socialism, what do I mean and what am I talking about? Um, for me, socialism as a trans-historical, trans-cultural um, phenomenon has basically three core definitional elements. Uh, the first of those elements is that human beings are a social species. Um, that we have evolved to live, work, um, and socialize in groups um, and uh, essentially uh, that is a biological reality. Um, you know, the, in social sciences, in political science and in economics in particular, there's this talk of um, individuals as self-interested, utility maximizing, rational actors, yada, yada, yada. Um, and they, and, and in economics, there's increasingly a field uh, of behavioral economics, which supposes to explain how and under what circumstances human beings deviate from that ideal behavior. And I, I give full credit to the field of behavioral economics um, for, for noting those observations and for coming up with models that note them. But rather than seeing the way that we cooperate in, in groups as a deviation from an ideal norm, um, socialists 
fundamentally should recognize that you know that ideal of individual behavior of, of selfish utility maximization just isn't what we are as individuals and not what we are as a species the second sort of key point of what socialism is is that social life consists of a series of social dilemmas um, that we are a social species that we live together in groups but the core problem of politics is how a group of individuals work and live together and make decisions about the collective good uh, in a way that doesn't um, sort of lead to the, the, the mutual uh, destruction of everybody. Um, so again, on the right, um, I'm sure people are familiar with the idea of the tragedy of the commons, right? Uh, and this, this is sort of the foundational myth of sort of the right-wing narrative, and that is that people are simply incapable of efficiently organizing themselves into a society, that the only way that um, they can govern themselves is through self-help and everybody looking out for their own interests and dividing up what is common into what is private property, essentially. Um, the socialist perspective is that, yes, you know, these social dilemmas are real. You know, we can point them out. I'm, I've just <laughs> finished my time in Geneva doing a great deal of game theory and sort of modeling all this stuff. Um, but it actually turns out that that tragedy of the commons self-help idea is actually incorrect. That um, in, in formal mathematical game theory um, senses, that there are cooperative solutions to many of these social dilemmas. And that, um, and then this is kind of the third point, is that often those cooperative uh, approaches to pro social problem solving, where we trust one another, where we are honest with one another, where we support egalitarian outcomes, are superior in terms of the outcomes that they deliver. They are, if you're inclined to discuss things normatively, then they are normatively superior solutions. Uh, and so those are the three elements for me, that we're a social species, that social life is characterized by social dilemmas, um, and that there are cooperative solutions to those um, social dilemmas which are superior in sort of every, any, any sense you can count. And sort of this creates an interesting dichotomy because then you can flip each of those definitional elements and say, all right, well, what is the right wing um, fundamental ideology. And the right-wing ideology is fundamentally the inverse of those three points. It's we are not a social species, we are individuals and families, depending on Margaret Thatcher's mood. Um, you know, uh, that there are social dilemmas, you know, they agree on that, but the right-wing perspective is that individual self-help is the most efficient way to solve social dilemmas. And this is the central argument of people like Hayek and the, and the libertarians. Uh, is that you know the market is this giant mechanism where everybody pursues their own self-interest and therefore we get the most efficient social outcome. Uh, and that, and then the sort of the normative aspect of, of the right-wing approach is that these self-help remedies on average produce social outcomes that are better than cooperative um, solutions. So I think the left-wing process and, and the, the, the left-wing philosophical position is to identify the places in society where there are social dilemmas, to demonstrate why the competitive or self-help approach doesn't work or hasn't worked uh, because of market failures and the inherent problems of coordination by private actors and you know, rent-seeking and all these other things in the literature. Um, and to say, well, actually, there is a cooperative solution to this social problem, and this cooperative solution is not only morally and ethically superior, 
God. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but it also does better. It, you know, it delivers better social outcomes. It delivers higher economic growth if, if that's the metric that you want, um, and it makes it increases the welfare of everybody. So, so that dichotomy between com competition and cooperation, between self-help and social programs, between capitalism and socialism, is is the is the central political background and. In the 21st century, you know, post Adam Smith, post Karl Marx, we've lost any other name for this other than sort of socialism and capitalism. So I kind of use those labels, um, but that's not to say that you know other cultures and other times wouldn't wouldn't think of these as, as sort of different in different terms. So uh, philosophically, and I'm sort of moving into the center of the book now. Um, my take is. Is, is a democratic socialist one. Uh, it is one that sort of sees socialism as an embodiment or an improvement upon the, the liberal uh, tradition rather than a rejection of it. Um, so uh, I define and sort of think generally of, of socialism as liberalism plus structural critique, right? We, we take on board the sort of the core philosophical assumptions of, of Locke and Rawls and all these people. Um, but we say the individualizing perspective that is in, embedded in that approach um, isn't sufficient to solve these social dilemmas, and we actually need to think about populations structurally and cooperatively in order to get to where we want to go. So the book itself spends several of the early chapters sort of running through the basics of a liberal social contract approach, and I understand that that's something that lefties generally don't like to think about very much. Um, but I think particularly in the context of Australia where we don't have a fundamental Bill of Rights um, and our democratic institutions operate more on the basis of customs and norms than anything else, um, that it's really important for the left in general to really commit to some of those liberal principles um, quite strongly um, because uh, as we can see all around us, the right and even the centre absolutely do not. And uh, I'll get to that in a second. So, so the three sort of core elements of, of liberalism that I borrow and, I, and I, that I think are important for socialists to uphold. Uh, the first thing is the idea of the universal social contract. Um, one of the sort of the core components of, 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 of liberalism is that it is a universal tradition that we do not think of ourselves as workers and capitalists that are locked in an antagonistic struggle against one another, but rather we are united as human individuals, as members of a, of a universal society. And this is where the sort of intersectional approach and the approach of looking at the, the rights of minorities is of particular useful, uh, particular, particular use. Because I think the fundamental object of any progressive movement should be to ensure that every member of society is treated to the full and equal dignity under the social contract um, that they're entitled to. And I think the core area, um, and I talk about this in the book, one of the core areas where um, Australia is very much not upholding this is in the area of indigenous rights. Um, I think if you look over the last 20 years of Australian policy, if not the last 200 years, or especially over the last 200 years, um, we have not seen the traditional inhabitants of this continent as full and equal members of the Australian social contract. Um, that we have, uh, in many cases, treated them with an extreme degree of paternalism uh, and uh, essentially not recognised their voice um, as uh, 
as equal citizens. And so, you know, I think we can talk about redistribution, we can talk about um, inequality, we can talk about all these high level economic issues. But if there are people in your society that are not treated with the full and equal dignity that they deserve as full citizens of your country, then that's the problem that you need to solve first. Uh, the second sort of core liberal commitment is, an, is, is, is the embrace of radical democracy. And this is to say not only, not only is every citizen of your society entitled to uh, equal dignity and equal respect, but also that we trust that they are um, the best, I you know, have to be careful with my words here, they are best able to make decisions uh, that affect their own lives. And at an earlier stage of drafting this book, uh, the, the, its working title was actually The Anti-Utilitarian. Um, because I think one of the greatest and, and uh, most pernicious aspects of the neoliberal moment uh, as practiced in the 1990s and the early 2000s was this idea that there was an expert or elite class that had the best idea of how to run society, that they could measure you know, the optimal happiness of everybody involved and weigh up the various interests of all different, uh, all different cl social classes and then come up with a policy solution that was in the best interest of everybody. Um, and, and the argument that I make in the book um, is that the, the neoliberal, the utilitarian, whatever you want to call it, perspective is fundamentally an authoritarian one. In that if you are making, if you are saying, I know what is in the best interest of someone else, um, that, that um, yeah, that, that if you're making decisions saying, I know what's in someone else's best interest, you're not a Democrat, um, you're an authoritarian. Um, and um, what socialists should really work to recognize uh, is that radical democracy is our ground work. You know, we, we believe that individuals uh, are able to make decisions both individually and collectively to manage their own affairs, to do so efficiently, and to do so in a way that suits their own interests. Um, so, so that's uh, sort of one of the, the, the core commitments. And there was another point there that I've temporarily forgotten. Obviously not important. <laughs> um, and the third and final thing that I think we should borrow from the sort of the liberal tradition um, is, is a universal bill of rights. Um, again, if this was a book that was being written about British politics or, or, even, or American politics, this would be a different argument. But the fact of the matter remains that Australia is one of the very few liberal democracies that lacks a fundamental bill of rights um, and that many of the government policies that many people in this room uh, will have objected to over the last you know, couple of decades, including the treatment of asylum seekers, including um, laws around privacy and encryption, uh, simply could not have been passed in most other Western countries because those countries have a robust bill of rights and judicial protection of those rights. Um, so in addition to sort of that, that civil and political picture, I think it's also important that we have a robust list of, of economic and social rights that we're committed to. And one of the principles that I borrow in the book from international law and apply to the economic space is, is, is this idea called the welfare principle. And that is, it's, it's a theory about the role of government and what the government um, should do in terms of respecting individual rights. The idea being that um, people can, you know, if you have a list of economic, social, cultural, political, um, civil rights, 
you know, can individuals through their own efforts, acting alone as individual utility maximizing rational actors, can individuals satisfy those rights on their own, right? And the answer is clearly not. Like, let's take as a very basic example, the right to life, you know, unless everybody is carrying around AK <laughs> at all times, um, if the government didn't outlaw murder, you know, you would not be protected, you know, against someone shooting you or hitting you with an axe or whatever. So society, society creates laws and societies create governments in order to guarantee those rights that you can't secure through your own efforts. And just as we apply those principles in the civil and political space, we should also apply those rights in the economic space. So that if you cannot, if you do not earn a sufficient wage to pay rent and you're homeless, or if you don't have a wage at all, um, if you cannot pay your health insurance premiums, um, that is a market failure, right? You cannot achieve through self-help a right that we expect to deliver as a, to you in, in, in terms of having equal dignity as a member of a, a liberal society. And so there is a prima facie case for government action to guarantee all of those rights through direct action. And so one of the areas in which I apply this in particular in the book is to this idea of a, the debate between, um, the, it's implicit in the book, but it's obvious in retrospect, is, is, is the distinction between a universal basic income and a guaranteed minimum income. Now, UBIs are very trendy at the moment, um, but they're actually very dangerous um, for, for the left. Um, and the reason is because they're based on a false philosophical premise. They're based on the idea that true equality is the government giving everybody the same amount of money. Under a democratic socialist or a liberal socialist perspective, you are equal in rights and you are equal in dignity. You're not equal in terms of your entitlement from the government in that people who have greater need who have the inability or the incapacity to secure the rights through their own self-help, they have a claim on the rest of society, they have a claim on the government in order to equalize their satisfaction of their rights with everybody else. And the argument that I make in the book is that our failure as a society to guarantee housing to everybody, to guarantee education to everybody, to guarantee healthcare and a living wage and a, you know, a meaningful income to every citizen is actually, in, in, in point of fact, a, a denial of their equality as citizens under the social contract. That in a sense that if you are not guaranteeing someone their equal rights, in, in most important respects, you're not treating them as, as, a, as a fellow citizen. Um, yeah. So those are the sort of the three important sort of liberal takeaways. And then on top of that, in sort of the second half of the book, I sort of go into the inequality space um, in terms that are very familiar to the debate now, um, but uh, you know, were more novel at the time, um, and sort of talk about why, why critiquing the structure of society matters, um, because there are a lot of different ways that we can meet individual rights. And in fact, one of the arguments that the right will make is that they'll say, yes, of course, we believe in individual rights. We believe in universal membership of the social contract. But the most efficient way to deliver universal health care, for example, is a fully marketized system. Um, and so the debate becomes um, a debate about means rather than ends. And they say, yes, 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 of course, we believe in these rights. Of course, we believe that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we just differ on, me, on ends. And so the second half of the book is really an argument as to why the self-help 
individual marketized approach to solving social problems is inefficient in, in delivering the outcomes that we want, is unable to guarantee the fundamental rights that we would expect people to have under a universal social contract. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a deep dive there into the literature on inequality. Um, this is all sort of common knowledge at this point, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that economic inequality is toxic for a liberal society at almost every level. Um, even if your perspective is one of sound economic management, I think even the IMF has published a ton of papers at this point showing that the more unequal your society is, the more unstable your economic growth is, the more likely growth is to end, the more likely it is to reverse, the more likely it is to, to go backwards. And the point, is, the point is not that sort of more equal societies grow faster, it's that they grow faster over longer periods of time because they're more stable and they're more resilient. The more important aspect of that, because economic growth is not everything, obviously, um, is that um, inequality is socially um, uh, uh, corrosive. Um, and this, is, this, of course, is the work by Wilkinson and Pickett in the spirit level and their, and their other published work, uh, where they basically point out that because we are a social species, because we are evolved to live in these relatively egalitarian um, social frameworks, the existence of hierarchy is actually extremely corrosive to individual well-being. And it's not just corrosive to individual well-being at the lowest levels of the income scale. It's not just that being poor is costly, because of course it is. You know, the, the, the social stress um, created by poverty is a huge contributing factor to, to the perpetuation of poverty. And obviously, um, you know, inequality uh, generates poverty. Um, but what Wilkinson and Pickett have showed, um, and I think to their credit, is that that social corrosion in, um, infects the whole of the social structure. Um, that if you're a middle class person in a, a highly unequal society, your basic life outcomes in sort of very highly measurable ways, including um, uh, life expectancy uh, sort of, and overall quality of life, are going to be lower than someone who is poorer but living in a more equal society because the existence of hierarchy itself um, is stressful and corrosive to individual well-being. And then there is, of course, the political aspect to all this, which we've kind of been living through the last three years, where we've seen that the, the greater that social inequality rises, the, the less polit political cohesion there is, the less social cohesion there is, the less social trust there is. Uh, and, you know, there's this... Uh, well, often quoted maxism, uh, maxim that um, fascism is liberalism in decay, and we have um, definitely been witnessing that the last several years. Um, I also talk not just about material inequality, but I also talk about more abstract inequalities. Uh, uh, equality of opportunity is, uh, is a phrase that is widely misused, um, but it is an important form of equality to consider because um, we don't merely distribute material goods and income, we also distribute the probabilities of income. Uh, and, and when we talk about opportunity, what we're talking about is the probability of your life status improving. Uh, and uh, there's a chapter after that that talks about risk, which is the inverse of opportunity in the sense that a risk is a probability of your life circumstances um, degrading over time. And the argument that I essentially make is that it's important to have holistic social programs, not only to socialize um, income and wealth and all these other material goods, but we also need to socialize 
opportunity, and we also need to socialize risk. Uh, and the way that we do this is through universal public education systems and through universal public health care systems. Um, now, you know, we in Australia in particular, we'd like to think that we have relatively robust social programs and certainly um, on many measures we do better than, than some other countries. Um, but the reality is that somewhat sneakily, <laughs> uh, John Howard and the, and the long conservative government essentially succeeded in creating a, a two-tiered um, social safety net in Australia for most essential social services. And we are largely dealing with the consequences of that politically and economically and socially today. Um, compared to most OECD countries, we have one of the highest rates of private education in the world. There are reasons for that, including the high um, levels of Catholic education, but even so. Uh, likewise, in the healthcare sector, we have one of the highest rates of private health insurance in the world. And despite the fact that overall um, we pay much less for healthcare than the United States, uh, as a percentage of income, Australians as individuals pay just as much out of pocket as, as their American cousins. So the reality is um, we've, we've created a stratified system and that stratification is self-reinforcing and evolves over time to, be, to become worse and worse in the absence of government action. Because when you have uh, families of, of low uh, socioeconomic background crammed into the public school system, where you have people who have high stress and low income jobs and perhaps recurrent health industries, uh, health problems crammed into the, the public healthcare system, of course, the impression that most people get is that those systems are worse systems that cater to um, cater poorly to, to the worse off. And so we see this social segregation happening that um, middle class parents uh, attend or middle, send their kids to middle class schools and they visit middle class hospitals and they get a pretty decent standard of, of, of life. But the social and economic costs of them doing that, the, the additional stratification that it creates is toxic not only for them, but for everybody below them on the social ladder as well. Uh, so those are the sort of the core dimensions of redistribution that I talk about. And then just to wrap things up, um, I sort of go into an argument towards the end of the book, um, sort of asking why this has happened, um, and basically boil it down to a problem of capital and labor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we've all read our marks. Um, and I sort of, I developed this analogy where I treat the two sort of, the, the two as being equivalent in some sense. So traditionally, you know, we think easily enough of unemployed people as sort of being wasted workers. This is, this is not my language, but this is sort of the way that sort of society as a whole generates its, its, its policies, you know, that the more people that are employed, the more economic growth we have, and the more efficient the market, and that unemployed people are, are in some sense an, an inefficiency or a drag or a waste. Uh, and I don't think it would sort of upset very many people for me to say in this room uh, that sort of the, the history of the state um, under the last, for the last 200 years has basically been a process of um, capital using the state to discipline labor um, to uh, adopt extremely coercive uh, mechanisms in order to force people out of unemployment uh, and into work uh, in order to increase the efficiency of production or whatever. The analogy that I develop in the book is that, well, that's not great, but we need to apply the same lens um, to capital. Um, and in the sense, um, wealth 
uh, is wasted capital. Um, that if someone is um, hoarding wealth above a certain, you know, whatever arbitrary <laughs> kind of limit you can dream of, um, that, that that's capital that's not being employed productively. You know, that, you know, if, if, uh, if billionaires were foregoing their, you know, $400 million yachts, you know, that's, you know, that's a $400 million social program. That's a $400 million factory somewhere that produces goods that are cheap and affordable to people. Uh, and yet wealth is not treated with the same level of discipline or harshness uh, as, as unemployed labor is. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily argue that the, the state should be a primarily coercive mechanism, um, but certainly there is a, 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 a unfairness um, in, in how these two things are treated. And essentially, you know, I, I take aim at the idea of supply-side economics, as, as you can arguably understand, and show that not only has, has the sort of state been um, gentle with capital, but has actively supported it uh, through a variety of mechanisms to increase the rate of profit in, in society at basically almost any cost um, to the level of equality in society, the sustainability of growth overall, the economic well-being of, of the individuals who live in it, and the accessibility and sustainability of social programs. Um, so I talk about um, the privatization issue, asset bubbles, you know, trade and foreign investment, and how all of these things have been deliberate policies by the state to support the interests of capital, um, and uh, in so doing, have only worsened the, the sort of the social cohesion and the, the domestic inequality that the liberal uh, society needs to function. And I don't think it would surprise anybody <laughs> uh, to sort of draw the implication that the combination of these policies over the last 20 years has led to the current moment of political disorder, um, that the collapse um, of trust in institutions, the directionlessness, uh, directionlessness? Uh, of, uh, of our political parties, the, the complete um, lack of trust in expertise, and quite frankly, and knowing lots of bureaucrats myself, the absolute contempt with which bureaucrats and elites hold the public, um, and uh, the, you know, their, their views of democracy generally, uh, as we know, pretty poor. Um, so to conclude, the book kind of wraps things up with sort of saying, only a, a strong philosophical commitment to a democratic socialist program that is focused on cooperative problem solving, radical democracy and radical equality um, offers a way out of all these issues that we can't look at it piecemeal, we can't look at it issue by issue, we can't look at it policy by policy because 10 years down the track, 30 years down the track, 40 years down the track, we're gonna be dealing with different issues. But this fundamental battle between what is a human society and how do we organize ourselves? Um, do we want to be a society of equals that trust and cooperate with one another and build a resilient social structure? Or do we want to be, you know, uh, you know a, a city of five million people living in the suburbs defending our individual castles? Um, I think is, is, is the core political question of our time. And I think having that core question under our belt and in our minds and underpinning all of our policies uh, will lead us in a stronger and better direction than the alternatives. So yeah, that's my spiel. <laughs>